This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today are Don Foster. Hello, I'm Don Foster. I am Director of Open Source Community Strategy within VMware's Open Source Program Office. I have been passionate about open source project health metrics for a really long time. I'm involved in the Chaos Project where I'm on the governing board and I'm involved in the Common Working Group. So if you haven't already joined us to hang out and develop some metrics, that's a good place to go. Daniel Esquerdo. Hey, this is Daniel Izquierdo. How are you? I'm one of the founders of Viteria, actively participant on board member of the Chaos community and then board member as well at the Inner Source Commons. So really happy to be here. And myself, Georg Link. Hi everyone, I'm Georg, one of the co-founders of the Chaos Project. I work at Viturgia, helping companies, organizations, communities get the metrics that they need. And I am super excited today to introduce our guest, Sofia Vargas. Sofia is working at Google, but Sophia, maybe you can introduce yourself much better than I could. I'm just super excited you're here because you've come to Chaos a while ago and you've been a really active participant and you have a lot to share today. Thanks for the introduction. Happy to be here. So my name is Sophia Vargas. I'm currently a program manager within Google's open source programs office. Within that team, I work on a sub team that's dedicated to research and operations. So I get to look at a number of different kinds of data sources and research all around open source and geared toward helping our teams internally and externally engage in the community. That all sounds super related to what we're talking about in chaos and on this podcast. So how did you get into this role that you're in now? What has been your journey? It didn't start here, that's for sure. So I started my career at Forrester Research, right out of college as in a supporting role, and eventually became an analyst covering infrastructure and operations, specifically data center design and economics. So talking about giant cold buildings and electrical infrastructure. And that's where I started my career, just understanding that market, buying patterns and Sitting in that role, I eventually started looking at the progression of infrastructure. We start talking about data center economics. I was working in this role right as the industry really started shifting toward cloud. So a lot of the initial conversations were just trying to understand the economics of this blended infrastructure as a service model. So my coverage translated fairly nicely into comparing different types of infrastructure sourcing economics between physical infrastructure and cloud services. But following the progression of the infrastructure market, I was keenly interested in following all the software definitions and abstractions that were happening throughout the stack and really started getting into open source and the role of open source and the progression of infrastructure and the evolution of infrastructure. So 
I started paying attention to open source more in about 2014, which is a, a known year for anyone who's familiar with the Kubernetes project. That was about the year where there were a couple of different kinds of orchestration tools that were cropping up to support the interest and deployment of containers and Docker. And so for me, it was a brand new concept and idea because I knew about it, but I hadn't really paid attention to it. So it started to become a lot larger of a focus area within my role at Forrester as an analyst and as a researcher in the infrastructure space. And that kind of led me to Google eventually. I wanted to do something new and I moved into an analyst and insights role in our, our marketing team, mostly focused on market research and dynamics, similar to an analyst, honestly, just without as much of the resources. Vendors weren't calling me up anymore and telling me what they did. I had to go look it up. But working in that role, I think I decided that I kind of wanted to try something new. I had been covering infrastructure for almost a decade at that point, and I was interested in better understanding the dynamics of open source. And so at Google, there's an incredible amount of work that happens in, in open source projects. And I was interested to better understand the role of that within a company uh, and how we work in open source and how we work and engage in the community. And so I applied for a role in OSPO and I switched over just before FOSDEM. That was my first foray into what I would call real open source <laughs> and learning about all the dynamics around the, the free software movement and just the diversity and kinds of communities, thoughts, and what people were interested in. So it was like a, a whirlwind all at once. But since then, it's been incredible learning all about open source. And I described it as I, I spent the first half of my career looking at how to theoretically build and design the best system, just in a perfect world if you could start from scratch, and now looking at how we're choosing to build things. So it's a different view of how, not just what's emerging in the technology space, but how we're changing the way that we work and work with those around us. So within OSPO, I, I manage our research program. So within the, the research and operations team, it's a little split between research and operations. On the research side, I am still actively involved in a lot of our market research and understanding the progression of open source as a tactic, as an interest, as awareness, and in, in say decision-making and just general technology selection process. But on the other side, I'm also working with a lot of our operational data, working in communities, in projects, both how we use tools and projects internally, as well as how we use them externally. And Google is a huge company. And at a certain point, the only way to really conceptualize what's happening is by looking at the data. And so while individual, say, project teams will make use of, say, GitHub data around projects to better understand uh, traction, how, what issues and bugs and feature requests are coming in from the community and understanding general operations around a project. My role is looking at it more in aggregate to better understand just how behavior is changing and evolving inside our own company. What projects are we working on most? How is the distribution of our activity across these different projects? And better understanding aggregate trends around our engagement models. And for OSPO, it's really understanding how are we supporting our community, both internally and externally. If 90% of our folks within Google are working on these projects um, or working on a subset and concentration of projects, then we have to ensure as OSPO, do we have the right documentation in place to increase accessibility of those projects for others that want to work on them? And just looking for what we can learn from this on whole, how that will inform our policies, our priorities as an OSPO within a large organization. 
One of the things that I'm a little bit curious about, so you mentioned, obviously, Google has more open source projects than we can probably count, right? There are so many open source projects that were started at Google. And so it's got to be a massive amount of data. And one of the things that we've been interested in at VMware is looking at the life cycle, like which projects just aren't getting any attention anymore. Maybe we need to archive those, which projects are maybe need some, I don't know, some help and some mentoring. I'm curious how you look at the life cycle of these open source projects in aggregate, because it's, it's just such a huge amount of projects. It is. And I think that is something that we actively want to do a little bit more programmatically. I think we generally have an idea of the trajectory of brand new projects, things that are more mature and are basically in maintenance mode, and then trying to be more specific about how we choose our deprecation policies or how we set our deprecation policies. Because I think the only thing that I've really learned about project dynamics, I think the the first thing I learned was just how unique they are. Every project has its own story, has its own context and usage internally, externally. And so the decision of whether or not to continue to invest in that project or not, or learn how to hand it off to someone else is so project dependent. But we as an OSPO are trying to be more uh, specific to help team leads and project leads know when this is the right step for them and knowing what to turn down. And we have had so many projects, to your point, and I think we've only gotten better at trying to do that over time. I think at the beginning, it was potentially just a little bit just, well, we're working on this now. (laughs) And I think we as an OSPO want to be more transparent about that as well, just in terms of the level of investment that we put into projects and to know that these are the ones that we are actively still working on and committing to. And part of that can be seen through say, external dashboards like Destats or something like that, where it's clear that we're still actively engaged in the project, but smaller fringe projects, that's less visible. So being a little bit more, having public statement around where we're going to be turning down support for certain projects. But I think it's definitely a work in progress and something that I'm not supporting as directly as other team members. We're talking about more holistically to try to be able to classify where projects are, what they mean to us, and how we continue to support them, even if that means that we're no longer working on them from an engineering perspective. This is something we hear time and time again, how different the very projects are and the dynamics within the projects and that comparing the metrics that we produce and we discuss this in chaos all the time that we cannot just build a quality model that applies to all projects the same thing. So I'm curious how you approach this to say, hey, we want to help our project leads and maintainers to know what the right next steps are for their projects. How you generalize that enough because we have infrastructure projects, we have user-facing projects, and We have projects with a large user community. Some are really developer communities. And how do you differentiate that and generalize that? Because at least from what I'm hearing, that is something a lot of people are interested in. I think on on whole, we don't quite do that much generalization in terms of recommendations beyond how to think through a project strategy and what your goals are. I think there are some say standard questions that we might ask project leads, what's important to them, what are they trying to accomplish, and then how can we help them measure that? But beyond it, it's a little bit hard to say. <laughs> I think I've seen too many fractions in terms of how to approach these things. I think 
Where I bring consistency is helping to ensure data accessibility to all the projects. We have a number of different ways for teams to learn more about their own projects. So I'm more interested in trying to give them the information to make these decisions on their own and talk through how they might measure and bring measurement to that process. We have a lot of internal data sets. I think it's known that we maintain a BigQuery data set of the GitHub archive since 2011. So that has been helpful in terms of creating aggregate trends about projects, about our own activity in these projects. So if we want to have any sort of historical view, but it it doesn't do a great job of looking at real-time data and statistics. So if your interest right now is understanding the minute changes in committers and concentration of where people are working, how they're working, um, and what areas are more or less productive, then that requires a lot more granularity. But it's up to the team how they want to instantiate that view. We are thinking about trying to create more of a central pipeline for that kind of information, but it's massive. So for an idea of scale, in last year, we worked on over 70,000 repositories as a company. So if you think about all of the GitHub API limits, we hit all of them. So it's pretty much up to the individual team how much they want to aggregate on their own. And so we're trying to create more of a set of recommendations of things that they can look at in terms of what's important to them. Say some examples are some projects are more interested in following the community distribution. How much are we involved? How much are other folks involved? And how is that changing over time? Are we being accessible to net new contributors? Does that mean we need better documentation? We need better guidance on how to move from a first-time contributor to an active maintainer. Um, So if that's the goal of your project, then those are the kinds of things we're looking at. Others are more interested in, say, contributor experience. So a lot of the things that they're looking at are just PR address velocity, how quickly are things getting picked up, how quickly are issues being responded to, who's responding to them, are we serving as a bottleneck versus is the community more active and able to support the project? So a lot of it is just understanding these kind of dynamics and depending on the nature of project and the goals of the project, what is our role in that? And we try to separate those views because I think especially something like project health needs to be measurable on its own. And yes, Say it's a Google project, Google has an outsized role in that project, at least at the beginning. But over time, if the project's goal is truly to be a sustainable project that has a trajectory outside of just our investment, then we need to be able to understand the impact of what we do in the project and what we don't do in the project. So that if, say, we were to deprecate our own presence in this community, would the project be able to continue? So with any sort of measurement like that, we're trying to enable the ability to have that view and measure them separately and say, understanding the role of a Googler inside getting a a PR submitted and merged into a project and understanding how accepting and how accessible we are so that anyone can join this community. Um, And we've had a, a number of research studies that look at, say, PR, PR context, (laughs) what are the kinds of pull requests that are actually getting merged from net new contributors? Are there ways that we can identify things that are more likely to get merged into the project? And how do we communicate that to net new contributors to better guide them? Because I think that's part of the trouble. There's so much individual context coming from a team that's all working at the same company and being able to be more open about what's important to them, as well as not hold all the keys. How do we make this more open, especially if that's the goal of the project or just trying to change the nature of what what we focus on? I was wondering, and this is a topic change here at the beginning that you mentioned that one of the first conferences you went to was POSDEM. 
remember we met at the community dev room, like in a random way, because that room is really packed every day, two full days. Typically we started to talk and so on. Oh, you're from Google, blah, blah. And then we, we had some conversations about research and so on, because we were both interested in research. Now I learned that was the first conferences you attended in your new role in Google. So I was wondering, given the fact that FOSDEM is a really developer-oriented conference done by developers and so on, what did you learn from FOSDEM as, as the first steps in, in Aspen Google? It didn't, I'm sure there's some bias here because we were sitting in the community room, <laughs> but the role of people and really this, I would call it like the emotional side of technology development in the sense of, I think before my role was really just focused on understanding the technology and the technology progression. And without having the engineering background, my my major was in math. So I loved thinking about large technology systems logically. I understand the concept of compute, of storage, of networking, and how these pieces work together to deliver services that we interact with. But going to FOSDEM, it was clear that the focus for me wasn't on the technology anymore. It was on the individuals and how they interacted with each other and how they were, say, in the community room, trying to engineer how they interacted together, how to create policies and procedures that were accepted and understood by anyone who wanted to be involved. And it was a the techno- first technology conference that I went to that I didn't feel the focus on technology. And it was about being there, meeting the people, interacting with these people and networking, and then just being there as a human, <laughs> which I think it's really easy to not think about the human pieces in these huge technology systems. But I think for me, that's that was the biggest change. And I guess I didn't speak completely truthfully. I had been to other open source conferences, but the focus for me was on in the technology, not in open source. So say I've been going to KubeCon for many years, but for me, it was following infrastructure and following the progression of abstractions over infrastructure. And even if you look at the attendees, a lot more of them are more infrastructure professionals versus say more of a developer-heavy audience, at least from the, the last conference statistics. I don't really know what they look like now. So given the open source, you mentioned how it's so much more focused on, on people. I'm curious how that changes the research dynamics. So you came from kind of a forester analyzing technology projects to analyzing open source projects. And what did you have to think about differently? What was different and what was the same about those two experiences? Well, I think they're is always going to be a people component within, say, decision-making inside an enterprise. So a lot of my work at Forrester was consulting directly with infrastructure directors, managers, people that were going to spend money on their infrastructure. So they, when the price tag goes above $1.4 million, then you want to ask someone else what you're doing just to make sure that you're not throwing your money at the wrong thing. So there was definitely an element of understanding why and how people made decisions inside a company. But with open source, there's this mixture of motivation that I've found particularly interesting and tricky to disaggregate from each other. So in these blended communities of corporate professionals that are working on these projects because they're part of their portfolio and part of their product set, but then there are folks that are participating outside of their, their functional role because they are interested in it. And in these large communities, they're blended. And 
I think I've been particularly interested in those comparisons in this last year. As a researcher, fun fact, the pandemic has really disrupted the market research industry in a way that I don't know. I think there are a lot of industries that are being disrupted by this unprecedented event in our lifetime. But I've been looking at market research studies for a long time. And this year, we started to see incredible hits to the quality of the respondents. So if you're familiar with surveying, there's always quality checks and ways that you can test if people are straight lining, are they rushing, are they putting in conflicting responses, or they say they're a CTO, but then they don't describe their management chain. And so there are ways that you can re-engineer quality in surveys. And We had to screen out some of the largest percentages of respondents that I've seen in a long time because there was an abundance of bots, an abundance of people trying to game the system potentially because they needed another source of income. But it really threw kind of the storm, what used to be a more straightforward process. And it, it reminded me just, again, those understanding the motivation behind why people are interacting with this, why they're taking this survey. What do they actually feel about it? And it's been tricky, but also quite interesting to see how we might separate those two pieces. Because I think the hypothesis is that if you have different motivation or incentive, then your behavior should reflect that. At least that's it's one idea. And so it's, I really enjoyed looking at, I mean, if you've seen it, the latest October verse from GitHub, where they published a few reports this year versus just one. They had one focused on productivity and how they were trying to to distinguish between these motivations was looking at the time of the commit. Was it happening during the workday or was it happening over the weekend? And noticing that with something like a global pandemic, people's time distributions and activities are shifting based on whatever they're going through. And they saw a large uptick in what they would think are personal or like personally motivated contributions because they were happening on weekends and a decrease of activity happening during the workday, which potentially could be bucketed as professional contributions. So I think it's still a large area of learning for me, but something that I think is going to be key to better understanding some of these dynamics. I think open source, we're a large proprietary entity. Open source is a large part of our technology portfolio and how we build both products as well as our own infrastructure. So we depend on this, but it's larger than us and it's out of our own control in some respects. So I think it's, it's an area of interest and an area that I will continue to try to investigate. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. So another question that I have is how... Has coming to chaos informed your work and what future do you see for chaos or where would you hope chaos as a project to go in the future? 
Chaos was the first open source project that I engaged with directly. I, in my role in OSPO, I've been consulting with a lot of our community leads and project leads. So I, I work with an extended group of open source individuals, both as employees and as, say, our leads in communities like Kubernetes and Istio and Knative. But I wanted to have firsthand experience of what it meant to work in public and what it meant to work in a project. And I liked chaos because it aligned with a lot of the things that I was working on or interested in to begin with. So it was a natural a natural step for me to try to experience what it was like to engage publicly and work on a shared problem. And so it's for me, it's been an awesome experience. And it's been especially, I think a lot about the discussion about accessibility. I've brought it up a couple of times. I think it's been a hard problem that I think everyone, at least myself, is becoming more aware of, especially now that we're experiencing work and social behavior all virtually. (laughs) And we have to be much more proactive about how we make things accessible and how we facilitate conversations across different communities. But I think working on chaos, I, I was always nervous about trying to work on open source because I have had a mild programming background, but not since college. I've been looking at data and I've been doing analyst work. I haven't been writing code. And with chaos, I felt that I could come in and contribute without having a strong coding background, without having this software development experience that I think I had in the past thought would be a critical step to be a contributing member of a project. So I was really excited to find out that I could be a contributing member of of this kind of project. And for me, I was really excited to also see another kind of project that would be considered open source in that, yes, there are software coming out of this project through through Augur uh, and other tools, but that's not the only thing that we're working on. We're working on concepts, working on operational metrics that can be used by different people, by different organizations. And this idea that output and productivity doesn't have to look like software and it can still be developed and collaborated on in this kind of forum. So part of the other reasons that I'm interested in open source is understanding how this kind of collaborative model that sits above any proprietary lens can create productivity in other kinds of areas, other kinds of things that we do, that we build, that we collaborate on. It doesn't have to be just software. And so I was really interested in chaos for multiple reasons, but just to see how these same principles of having a code of conduct and a governance model and a contributor model would look like in a project where the primary things that are coming out of the project are not software. In terms of where chaos is headed, I think that as open source grows in in individual portfolios through companies, looking at the operational components are going to be increasingly more critical for anyone who uses this within their own tooling, their own infrastructure, their own product set, or even for personal reasons. Maybe you don't care as much if it's just your own tooling, but maybe not. And for us, I do see my role as more of infrastructure operations at this point, understanding the dynamics around a project and how they do impact our operations. We think about it even for something like scale. I think 
talk about scale a lot at Google because we're huge, but the only way that you can successfully scale is if you have a way to measure that the things that you do are effectively scaling and having the right type of impact. There's always the, the scaling things gone wrong. You do something once small, you do it many times poorly. That's really not ideal. So I see chaos as serving a critical role in helping mature that practice of having mature operations around open source projects. And if the market research efforts are correct, that this is a significant and growing portion of net new application development, then other organizations are going to have to take this more seriously. And when they get to that stage, where do they go? They go to the community and they go to a project that will help them day one to understand what they can start to measure and what that would mean for them. Now that there is room for improvement as in everything, and we are talking about chaos, is there any specific area you're missing in chaos that you would like to start working about? Perhaps landing a bit more the, the question is, um, and that's my, my personal, very personal opinion. So in chaos, we, we have the software side, we have the metric side. When we are discussing about metrics, we typically focus perhaps too much on metrics. So one of the things I'm missing in some cases are use cases. So we can define perhaps a use case as a aggregation of several metrics from several working groups that we have. So we may take a couple of them from diversity, three or, or four from the common working group, from risk, value, et cetera. So some kind of extra layer on top of this with the goal of having those use cases might be worth exploring. Yeah. So actually, I do have something then in that case. As someone who works with data, I think a lot about data usage and the ability to be known and unknown within these samples. And especially, it's very sensitive working for a proprietary entity because when we do collect data around individuals, we're responsible for that. And we have policies and security procedures to ensure the protection of that information. But in the community, there's more openness. People are known participants or they can choose to be anonymous. And it's yielding this sort of an interesting dynamic where in if everything was corporate, we would just contain everything, store everything, hide everything. But now that everything is open, there's this boundary that you cross where now you're interacting with known entities and the data that you're looking at applies to a real person who you know or you've heard of. And I've always felt strongly about the ability to look at data completely anonymously as a way to understand what's happening. But then I think Again, talking about the human component of open source, I think it's hard to pull that out. And because you are working with people across borders, country, company, it, it is important to know if people are comfortable sharing that information. But I think there's this, this sort of weird line between comfortable and effective versus choosing to respect the privacy of an individual. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot from the perspective of diversity and inclusion initiatives. I've been working with a couple of projects on their community surveys, just as a methodology reviewer um, and something like that. But one of the things we've been talking a lot about is if a project would like to increase or proactively try to increase the diversity of those working on the project, they first need to know who is working on the project and how they identify to know what those underrepresented groups are. But now we're asking highly sensitive information that is uncomfortable for people to share. So there's this balance between how we effectively can, say, promote diversity and inclusion amongst underrepresented groups without causing individuals to feel uncomfortable about opting in or sharing more information than they want to. 
And so I think we're going to start to see, at least I'd like to start to see more of, again, like just proactive acknowledgement of this, this decision or this inclination. If we really, this is something that's important to us and this is why we are doing it, but still having the ability to opt out and having the ability to stay anonymous. And in very large communities, I think that's a little bit easier to balance versus very small where if there's your sample size is 20, you kind of know who it is, even if you decide to abstract it, if you know who you're working with. So I think it's going to be interesting to see the progression of chaos and how we start to address this, the sensitivity piece where people might not be as excited about being known in all places as themselves. And so how do we balance being proactive in some of these initiatives while also respecting the choice of people to remain anonymous? Yeah, that's indeed a very good point. I, I remember one of the, so we are doing some survey with the ASF and there is already a public readout of the results. There was, I don't exactly remember, that was around 8% of the people that carefully choose their handle, just not to represent gender or any other kind of uh, attribute, personal attribute, with the goal of, this is me, but this is my anonymous me. So that's definitely very important. On the other hand, and then I'll play now the devil's advocate, in open source, Typically, if you are giving your name and surname or personal information, is I think there is as well a fair use by third parties or by others to set attribution, right? So these people that are here are participating in this project. And even there are companies that are asking their employees to, to specify, for instance, their domain of the company with the goal of being listed as one of the main contributors from that uh, more company perspective. So... There is a balance and that's definitely a really good topic to discuss about in chaos. Yeah. One of the things that I worry a lot about actually is just people naively gathering some of the sensitive data and not realizing how sensitive it is. And so it's one of the things that I've been pushing for us to do, but I don't think anyone's picked it up yet uh, within the chaos project is some sort of ethical guidance. So not telling people what they can and can't do with the data, it's their data, but giving them some some guidance for how they can use this data ethically and how they can think about it. Because you don't necessarily think about, even in a very large data set, you might have only one or two people that match a very specific demographic. And they may or may not want to be exposed as the person with that demographic. And so you, even in big data sets, you can end up with stuff that's pretty sensitive if you don't think about it the right way. I think there's a lot more to unpack here. And I look forward to having these conversations in the chaos community because we are coming to the end of our time for this podcast episode. So Sophia, if people want to follow your work and connect with you, where can they find you online? I have a moderately used Twitter account, Sophia underscore IV. Fun fact, I have no idea how to use Twitter still. I know it's been around for a long time and I, I used it as an analyst to showcase new research and or where I was presenting. But I've noticed that in, in open source worlds, Twitter is now also a point in communication and being able to find people anywhere. So I think that's the easiest way to find me personally within the vast internet. <laughs> and so I think that's, I'm, I'm happy to, to have conversations there as well and engage publicly in that forum. Excellent. Now we move on to the last segment of the podcast, Value Ads, where we talk about something that has brought value and joy and meaning to our lives. And my pick 
my value add for this week is Jackbox, a game that we play with our family on the TV where everyone is using their personal devices to log into the game. We have the big TV that guides us through it. And then there are different game modi. One is where you have to complete a sentence in a funny way. Another one is where you have to draw like a supervillain and superhero, and then they fight against each other. And then throughout the interactions, the other players always vote which one they thought was the funniest or the most interesting. And it's been really interesting to have that engagement while we're all staying home. And it's something that our kids really enjoy playing and ask for almost daily that we play Jackbox again. I can go next just to stick with the whole gaming theme. So we have friends that live just down the street from us that we play games with every week. And of course, now where I live in the UK, we're locked down. We're not allowed to meet in other people's houses. So we've moved everything online and we've been using Tabletop Simulator, which I've talked about before on this podcast. But I wanted to mention a couple of really specific games that we've been playing. So on, on New Year's Eve, we got a bunch of people together online to ring in the new year by playing Munchkin, which is just a, it's a fun, easy game. It's, it, it doesn't require a lot of brain power and thinking. So it's fun just to, to play as sort of a social thing. The other one that we've been playing is Bloomhaven, which I don't know about Tabletop Simulator, but like the box version of it is incredibly expensive, but you get so many games out of it. So we've been playing this for months with some friends and we play one, you know, kind of one dungeon a week. And it's been, it's just been a lot of fun because it's, you know, it's kind of a similar style of play, but it, it's a little bit different, but you have to play it with kind of the same people. So you have a little, it's like D&D, you've got your little group and you do your little quests, but it's been loads of fun. And so I'd really recommend that if you're looking for, if you're looking for a new game to play with a regular set of friends. Then I'll go next. If we keep uh, talking about board games, definitely we have to mention Pandemic. That's a game you can feel like a superhero. It's really hard, definitely. So that's something really, really, it's a really great game, cooperative game. By the way, I've been trying to, to buy the season one, this kind of 12 months that you can, you can play. Couldn't I, I didn't find it anywhere. So let's see if I find this anywhere else. And perhaps the other highlight I would like to bring here is it's been almost a year since all of this started. And now I've discovered, I know this is really old, but I've discovered Pilates. So that's a good thing to do at home. <laughs> that's all. So you've discovered what? Oh, that didn't come cl- come across clear. Oh, clear. Pilates. Pilates. Oh, Pilates. Pilates, okay. I've that's been good. doing that too. And I just started it during lockdown. Oh yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> plus one to Pilates. Plus two to Pilates. <laughs> also plus one to Pandemic. We definitely played that with my partner early on. And for the first time we actually won, which if you've ever played the game, you lose a lot. So it was, it was this moment where we're like, wait, did we do all the things? I think we won. So I, I definitely will plus one to, to all board games. I, I personally have been doing a lot of puzzles as a way to travel to other locations. I've lately been picking the ones of places that I miss. So we knew we were supposed to go to Amsterdam for KubeCon back in April. So I bought an Amsterdam puzzle and put it together shortly after that. But I think that the value add, which is not related to board games as much as I love them, my big discovery in this period has been, I want to say that I'm learning how to cook again, where it's like I knew how to make food and survive. But I think being cut off from the wonderful life of leisure that is New York City restaurants for so long has really 
caused me to rethink about what we eat and how we eat it. And we've been become very frequent participants in our local farmer's market. And it's been, maybe I'm just deprived for social interactions, but it's been a wonderful way to learn about our surrounding communities, what we can actually grow in the 200 mile radius around my home, not to mention that everything is outside. <laughs> so it's been this wonderful rediscovery of something that's always been there and in my neighborhood. But because I traveled so much and my schedule was very different, I never really went there. And so I think at this point, we're buying 50 to 80% of our food from our, our local markets and we're meeting the growers, we're meeting the sellers, we're actively engaging in their supply chain. So it's been a fun discovery of both what's available as well as new culinary adventures, which are always an adventure depending on how adventurous you are. And that brings our episode today to close. Thank you, Sophia, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. This was so much fun. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you, Don and Daniel, for serving as panelists today. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. This is fun. I enjoyed it. And thank you to you, our listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app podcast with your friends and colleagues and if you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest please email us podcast at chaos.community we hope you enjoyed this episode until next time your chaos community